tell you how much I just love these mezzanines. It's always brings my anxiety level just right down. I get to sit, have a bagel with friends, and then talk about uh, where we've been in our last sermon series. Stephen and I are going to just briefly recap this series so that we all are kind of on the same page before we start discussing. And then there will be four discussion questions that uh, you will be able to work through at your tables and at a leisurely pace. No, no, no rush here, guys. So, uh, well, first of all, Stephen, thank you for this uh, story behind the Doctrine Sermon Series. I really, really appreciate it. Yeah, it's fun to do. Yeah. And it was, it was actually quite helpful for me because I was able to process through some of the issues I have with doctrine. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think me too. Uh, and I think that was the key point that, that was brought up in every, um, every sermon was that we misunderstand doctrine or that the issues we have with doctrine seem to come from the way that we perceive doctrine and actually the way that we perceive it might not actually match up to what it actually is, yeah? Yeah, that's exactly right. And so there was like four, four different types of uh, complaints we might have, right. if you like. Right. Uh, we called them the four flips. So what most, most of us tend to think right off the bat, and I think because of the way that history has played out and certain, um, certain moments in history that weren't, weren't so great, uh, I think of inquisitions when I think of doctrine. I think of the way that doctrine was sort of used as a means to uh, coerce large groups of people into being controlled or... Uh, or the way that, that doctrine even today can be used to kind of um, by, you mentioned the doctrine police, right? Uh, used to sort of um, keep people in line and, and check. And so we tend to see it as this rigid grid that, <clears throat> this rigid grid of, of structure and rules that we have to f um, bend ourselves into and fall in line uh, in, in certain ways. And that actually in the process, our humanity and maybe some of our own creativity or personal freedom is, is lost in, in, in the process. And so what we have is um, the way that doctrine is, tends to be misunderstood, first of all, is that it's seen to be a table of contents. If you look at the first word up here, seem to be a table of contents that that is sort of pointing to a story, but we've actually become more invested in, in the table of contents itself rather than the story. Uh, secondly, uh, there are detached uh, ideas, ideas that aren't really embedded in our reality and don't really have much effect on our day in and day out um, living situations or our relationships, but they're these metaphysical uh, spaces that we, that we maybe access um, if, if we feel like it, but, but they're kind of out in space then it's all about answers. We tend to misunderstand that doctrine is all about answers and there's these sort of rigid answers that we're looking for. And so the mystery and the paradox of experience is somehow squashed down into the space of answers rather than beautiful questions or mystery. And then lastly, it was a means of control and that, that would be like the inquisition piece. We're going to take uh, this rigid doctrine and we're going to use it to... Um, to have uh, an entire population uh, under our thumb. Yeah. Uh, so, and to be very clear, we, you, what you 
put is that these are the ways we misunderstand doctrine, and this is actually isn't what it is at all. Yeah, no, exactly. And, and so, you know, to, just to take the first, like I said, we call it a f- sort of flip our understanding of how doctrine is and what, what it, how's it, how is it meant to function in our lives. Mm-hmm. And so on that first one, I think what we've done is put the cart before the horse, and we've essentially said, look, we're going to use the story, uh, and it's useful to us in, in as much as it provides a bunch of verses that we can pluck out and use those verses to, to support um, our doctrinal propositional statements. Um, but, but that's all sort of back to front and inside out. We're not meant to use the story to prop up our doctrine. The doctrine was there actually to reinforce the, the key moments in the biblical plot line. So it's there to reinforce the, the story. Um, and, and because, and this is, this is a problem that I've noticed over and over again, um, and it's got kind of a problem that as a church we're going to have to figure out how to get, get past as well. Because very often what happens is people who are conservative, evangelical, orthodox Christians will hear, because they're so familiar with the doctrine, but so unfamiliar with the story, um, when they hear the actual story from the New Testament, they're like, no, 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 that's, that's, that's not right. That doesn't sound right. And they become very suspicious of, of what we're saying. Um, and they not only become suspicious of it, but time and time again I've noticed people have actually rejected it and said, no, 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 leave me alone with the story I've always been telling. Um, and, and so the, the classic example is the resurrection. You know, you say, well, the Christian hope is that we're going to die and we're going to go to heaven, uh, and God is trying to snatch as many souls out of this place as he possibly can before he screws it all up and chucks it away and is done with creation. Uh, that's the story people are bought into. But do you believe in the resurrection? Oh, yes. So they're affirming this doctrine of the resurrection, but they're not really telling the story of the resurrection, um, which, of course, is a very different story. Uh, the, the New Testament isn't interested in what happens when we die. Not much. There's not much in there about that. A little bit, but not much. But it's much more interested in this concept of resurrection, which is this promise that God is going to what God has done for Jesus in reversing all the effects of death and, and innocent suffering and injustice, God is going to do that what, for the rest of creation and for, for, for human beings. Um, and so that's a very different, different story. But we're so, we've become so obsessed with the table of contents, we, we, do, we actually reject the, the, the Christian story. Right, and so... And so we have story. Instead of becoming obsessed with the table of contents, we actually uh, want to become fully invested in the story itself and what is actually being said. And a lot of that has to do with, with history, going back and kind of immersing ourselves in what it means to be um, a sort of a first, second century Christian and how they understood it, right? I mean, right. we were talking about this yeah. um, the other day. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely, and, and so understanding how they were reading the, yes. the story and, and telling the story to, to each other. Yeah. Right, right. Well, another funny, funny thing, because I've, I've experienced this um, as well, not only does the story create suspicion, but even just suggesting that we maybe even need to uh, look at, at things through the lens of, of historic context or... So, so yeah. look, so this, here's, here's the problem. There are, there are sort of gatekeepers in, in the church and, and they tend to be the people who've written particular books and, and have really been a blessing to the church in many ways. But those same people end up, um, who've been helpful in some ways, end up being the gatekeepers who tell people, oh no, if you hear anyone saying this and don't believe them because this is... And so that everyone is sort of preloaded so that, so that they've, everyone's already been pre-warned, don't, don't listen to this story, you know. And, and actually some of these people 
have actually used the argument, well, you don't want to delve too much into, you're using too much historical context to make your argument. And, and that's a very strange argument to make because whatever we're reading, it's always going to be in some sort of context. It's never not in a context. And you're either going to be reading it through yeah. you know, the lens of now in this historical context and moment, or you're going to be reading it through the lens of, of maybe Martin Luther's, uh, you know, the medieval church sort of thing or we at least tried to go back to the first century, and that's why that, that kind of work needs to be done. Yeah, yeah, and I know quite a few of you here, there seems to be this ongoing organic conversation that's just arisen because we were, some of us are listening to the Bema podcast, and this is my quick plug for the Bema podcast, <laughs> uh, B-E-M-A. But if you really want to uh, dive into the historic context of the Old Testament, this podcast is amazing. It's run by this guy named Marty Solomon, and he actually... Um, is, is a trained rabbi, but, but a Christian, and, and, he's, and he wants us Westerners to have full access to the Eastern mind and the way that rabbis and, and uh, Old Testament thinkers and even the characters themselves kind of understood what was going on in these stories. Um, so if you have a chance, just listen to the Bema podcast. Stuart Coles recommended it to me, and I've just gone in this deep dive, and the funny thing is is that like five other people have too. So uh, if to get really immersed in historic context, uh, please check out BEMA, BEMA podcast. It's a good plug. <laughs> yeah, okay, sorry. Um, okay, so let's go to the de de detached point, yeah? Yeah, and, um, and so, so the, these, these are kind of related. So, so essentially because we've abstracted the, the, the doctrine from the story, then they themselves, the doctrines themselves seem very abstracted and detached from real life. Uh, and so, you know, we, we gave... We, had the example of, you know, well, Jesus is God, Caesar is God, okay, that's your metaphysical theological beliefs, but let's just get on with the rest of life. But, of course, you can't do that, because the moment you say Caesar is God, that determines what humanity is going to look like. Mm -hmm. uh, do we stay behind to look after the sick, or do we throw them out into the street to die? Do we, do we, do we keep two-thirds of the empire as slaves, or do we treat the slave as our brother, right? Uh, do, do we allow, if, if the only authority on planet Earth are, are, are multinational corporations, uh, if that's the highest authority, then, of course, we're all units in the market place and every in relationship is transactional if jesus christ is the highest authority he is god incarnate the incarnation right then then perhaps we have to rethink all of that yeah yeah well and i even liked what you said um in the last um the last one on sermon on the trinity uh where you said uh, we tend to view God as, as a monad right as this sort of singular guy in the sky with a beard and full of like really sort of uh, an authoritarian figure uh, but actually, if, if he's the Trinity, then it's this, he, he might actually exist more in the, in the context of love and a, re a loving relationship. And how does that affect so, so, our lives? So sometimes yeah. people talk about God is love uh -huh. or, or you know, God is loving. So, yeah. so, so some, these aren't quite the same thing. To say mm -hmm. God is love, mm -hmm. we're, we're saying something about his existence. And so yeah. th this idea without the Trinity, what you were talking about is this monad who, who has existed on his own yeah. from eternity past, and there's no one to actually love, right? Until you, God creates human beings or angels or something, something yeah. and someone to love, then that dormant loving side of God comes alive. Mm -hmm. uh, but until then, it's just lying dormant. Well, actually, that's not what the Christian doctrine of the Trinity yeah. says. It says that this is this is this. Uh, there is this um, mystery of God, this one God who exists in the loving community, and so God has been love yeah. from the start. 
And, and, and this is the sort of thing that undergirds. So this is the, the kind of, well, on the one hand, while we want to recognize it as concrete, these metaphysical speculations have concrete realities. What we don't want to do is then say we can pin down mm -hmm. something, you know, God and, and ultimate reality and, and sort of say, look, here's the answer. Yeah. Uh, close the door on mystery. Um, we part of the way it becomes more powerful in concrete ways in our lives is by actually allowing this to remain a paradoxical, mysterious. It, we should feel that paradoxical tension. It should. It, it's not about bringing us the explaining things, but it's about bringing forward the inexplicable nature of God. And we have to leave that that those our theology in that yeah. space where we understand our language is not enough to wrap around God yeah. because if we don't then it will have some really disastrous consequences in the way that it works itself out in the in, in real life yeah. yeah no no absolutely uh, and I, I think as, as someone who kind of lives in, in a creative space and understands how art works on people it's not offering uh, answers uh, you, you walk into a museum you're just kind of overwhelmed by the, the beauty, or even the opera last night. I was sort of, I had no idea what was going on. And, and, and to be perfectly honest, I was like, this is three hours, it's kind of boring. But I walked away feeling so happy. It had worked, it had like worked on my soul, like uh, bypassed my brain in, in yeah. some way and worked on my soul. And I, I tend to think of, uh, of, of doctrine as, as functioning more like this, um, really actually shaping and affecting you almost as, um, uh, under the radar in, in a lot of ways. Um, just one weird sort of concrete thing for me is that uh, thinking of, of God as, as being in relationship and, and fully present within himself uh, for the other members of the Trinity um, has just uh, allowed me so, to be more fully present, I, I feel, just for, to other people. Um, and, and, and that just is a very concrete, and, and so, real And so that's one of the thing. things, you start stepping into this, is instead of yeah. going, well, let's just explain this mystery away, or, or the other thing is, well, it's not about making room for mystery, because people can make room for mystery and go, oh, it's one of those things we don't really understand, yeah. it's mysterious, and then just put it aside, and it's got this little corner of our lives. Yeah. But actually it's more about not just letting mystery have this little space, yeah. but actually stepping into it and dwelling in it more. Like you said, the opera, you sit there for hours and hours <laughs> and hours. So, so you, 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 you dwell in this mystery and then it starts to undergird your life, right? Yeah. It starts to have starts this, to uh, yeah, shape and, it, and, yeah. and tell you what's important and what's valuable and, and, yeah. and all of that. Um, yeah, and I start to think about how, um, how something like the love of God or the Trinity might actually allow us to be fully more fully present and more fully invested in relationships because we see relationships as sacred spaces and how that cuts through the noise of, of in a culture where people struggle to even maintain eye contact for any length of time because they have either a crazy schedule or a text comes up on their phone. Um, the other day I was in a coffee shop and I just so happened to be sitting next to this, this elder, elderly African-American woman and, um, I, I just looked her in the eye in, in a, this weird sort of space of like, I'm fully present. And then she started talking to me. We ended up talking for an hour and a half. Um, and then she was telling me all about her life. And then I was telling her about, about my life. Um, and she turned out to be the, the, the she grandma. She turned out to be the grandma from the Cosby show. Um, yeah. Um, so I spent an hour and a half talking. I spent an hour and a half talking to Marcella Lowry from The Cosby Show, who's also in What About Bob, uh, who's lived in Harlem since 1967, just because I, I feel like I'm able to be a little bit more present for people and like patient in conversation. Very strange. <laughs>
but also very beautiful. And that's how the Trinity works out in our life. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> 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 and I, I want to, I'm conscious of time because we, we want yeah, yeah. to space for so people to talk. But we'll get on to the, the last one. Um, so with mystery well, and then... We talked about that, yeah, yeah. okay. And, and so, so really, um, the, so all of this has been, it's, it's often seen as nasty old Irenaeus going around as a bishop, getting people for believing the wrong things and, the, and doctrines used to persecute uh, and, and control people. And it's about handing power to the church. But actually, this is not where doctrine emerged. Irenaeus and, and Origen, the, these are people who themselves, Origen saw his father's he, being beheaded as a boy, and he himself was tortured. And Irenaeus was trying to support a persecuted church. So it's actually the other way around. It's, it's, so don't buy this, this thing about, oh, the church is just using doctrine to control people. That's total fiction. Now, you may have all sorts of objections to the church. It's fine. But that's, that, that's not one of them. I mean, this, this is fiction. That's not where doctrine comes from. It comes from a place of intense persecution. And there's this story that is bringing the church into confrontation with the powers that be. And, and what, what Irenaeus and, and Origen and others want to do is reinforce that story. And they did it through the, um, the formulation and formalization of that aspects of that story, which is doctrine. Yeah, yeah. And I think the sh- you mentioned like the sheer grit or the courage that was that was actually uh, that were able to m- not muster in themselves, but almost like the doctrine w- and, and the, the belief and the story was was giving to them as they were facing um, uh, oppressive. You, you're, you're being burned yeah. alive in iron chairs. You're being yeah. fed to the lions and and put to death by the sword. And so what? You know, so suddenly the resurrection and the incarnation and yeah. the Trinity. I mean, all of this starts to flood in and undergird the, these people's lives. The ultimate weapon of the tyrant is death. Yeah. Resurrection takes that weapon away. Yeah. Well, and that to me is just so beautiful. I mean, uh, completely tragic and painful, but also incredibly beautiful that uh, whole groups of Christians would be subjected to that kind of pain, suffering, and torture. And the thing that's sustaining them is the resurrection, the incarnation the Trinity, and the mystery and the vastness of these things, uh, almost opening up a vast world of complete um, beauty in the face of a complete, uh, completely terrible, oppressive situation. I mean, that's just... Yeah, yeah and, and so it's not just an intellectual exercise. No. And, and um, so with, with this as our background, uh, what I'd like to do is, as, as time goes on, is introduce more of the creedal statements into our liturgy uh, week by week, because, and, and with this explanation, understanding, um, because I think that would just be one more way of us pressing into that the, the story. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, thanks again. thanks again, Stephen. Thank you, everyone.